Hi, podcast listener. Welcome to Truth About Exits, a show dedicated to pulling back the curtain to reveal what it really takes to get deals closed. You'll hear directly from founders of companies who have raised capital, sold their companies, and even those who acquire other companies for growth. I'm your host, Corin Woodmass. I'm a dealmaker, advisor, and when I'm not closing deals, I love to talk to others about their deals and what it took to get them closed. And now you can listen into these conversations too. For all the show notes and more resources, go to truthaboutexits.com. And we're live. Today, we have my friend Chris Rawlings on the show from Judo Launch, the rock star that partied too hard. We'll get into that story in a little bit. Chris, thanks for jumping on the show. Hey, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I love that introduction. Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait to explain to people what the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll start there. So, you're probably most known for Judo Launch, and you speak all over the world, which I want to talk a little bit about, too. Yeah, let's start. Why did you launch Judo Launch, or even what were you doing before then that led up to that? Sure. The reason that uh, Corin is saying that I party too hard is because I, I'm assuming this is what you mean, Corin. Maybe you have a different reason for this, but I jacked up my back and got like a serious herniated disc while being in a touring rock band called the Waffle Stompers, which you should check out. It's ska music. So most people don't like ska music, but you might like it if you're a weirdo like me and you like ska. And I herniated a disc, which caused me to utilize that as a kind of differentiating factor in the brand that I started, which was in the health and personal care space. And it was for spinal health and posture improvement products for other people who either had spinal injuries or posture issues like me. So yeah, party a little too hard, got hurt, um, and then use that as a kind of, hey, I'm scratching my own itch with you know these unique products that, that I created. Awesome. And, yeah, uh, that- and that brand is, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, mate. No, no. So I was just going to say that brand is what ended up leading me to realize that more help is needed for brands that try to succeed on Amazon. So that's how I started Judo Launch was to help companies succeed on the Amazon platform. So here we are. <laughs> awesome. Glad I parted so hard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that's a common theme. I think the last few conversations I've had with friends locally have here in Austin have revolved around this scenario where I'm not necessarily partying too hard all the time, but something that happens. And then as entrepreneurs, we feel compelled to either make something better or fill the gap in the market. It's not a choice. You have to do it. So I thought I'd lead without telling you about it first, because <laughs> that's quite an interesting story. So you went from having the back issue, creating products, selling mostly via Amazon, and then judo launch. So you said helping people launch on Amazon. So that's what we're going to jump into in most of today's conversation. So the first piece, I guess, you saw a gap in the market, but then you made a decision that I think it's either you do or you don't get it. But a lot of the people that I talk to, a lot of our clients at least, bootstrap their businesses. They don't go and get capital. Right. So you went out and raised a seed round. So could you tell us what was your thinking? What motivated you to go that route? And then mm-hmm. what other options you thought of at the same time? Yeah, I think, well, so sometimes it does make sense to raise money and sometimes it actually doesn't make sense. Like when it does make sense is if you have a 
large market opportunity that you have the ability to capitalize on in uh, very quickly and in a very highly scalable way. That's how I feel. If it's like, you know, software or services, sometimes products, but if the market opportunity is really big and you can sell it like, okay, this company could be worth a billion dollars, then you have the potential to raise capital. If it's not something that's highly scalable and the total addressable market is not big enough, then it's going to be much harder to raise capital. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it'd be a very different game than this going the standard VC venture capital route where you raise a seed round, then a series A, then a series B, then a series C. Then, you know, if you want to continue, you can continue all the way to IPO or, you know, get acquired. But it's if you want to go the fast growth route, like you're willing to give up pieces of your business to make the whole business bigger because you believe that a smaller piece of a much, much larger business is still bigger than the entire piece of a business that you could have grown on your own just on retained earnings. Hmm, Exactly. Okay. And I get that as a concept. I feel like it's easier to say than implement. So have you... Oh, dude. Totally. It's so messy. So since the, we'll get into the mechanics of it a little bit, but since raising capital and along the way, have you ever had any moments where you thought, yeah, that might've been a mistake or I should have done this in a different way? <laughs> have have you thought about that? Oh my God, dude, constantly. I'm always, I just feel like an idiot every day, pretty much. Like seriously, <laughs> like I always feel out of my element. I always feel like I'm faking it till I make it. Like, yeah, I mean, well, shoot. Maybe I should have uh, <laughs> asked you about who would be listening to this podcast before I decided to be so transparent. Ah, fuck it. Here we are. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, it was really a learn learn as you go. And like you said, we engaged with 500 startups, a tech accelerator. It was one of the top five tech accelerators in the world, still is, in terms of deal flow, in terms of level of activity and capital deployed. And so, yeah, they're right up there with Y Combinator we engaged with them. And that was actually kind of like my school of hard knocks into this world. Like I came from like the cash flow, five hour work week, you know, like Amazon business world to like this completely whole other universe that I did not know or understand. I was like Googling, what is a series A? What is a series B? And I had to like, you know, figure it out from the ground up and realize like all of the unwritten rules, not just the things that you can Google on Investopedia, but also, you know, the unwritten rules about it that, you know, nobody is there to teach you. Mm. Like the scarcity component of when you're raising a round, you have to make up a completely arbitrary period of time that the round is going to be raised for and a cutoff so that there's a scarcity component. Otherwise, nobody ever actually wires the funds. And it's like, I didn't know that. You have to like set your, you have to decide and set your own valuation. And it turns out there's not really a science to that. Like everyone will try to tell you that there is, but there's really not in the techo sphere. You know, people would just kind of set their valuations and it's either from comparing to other companies similar and similar to them in the space or some very loose present value interpolated from projected future earnings. But most of the time it's not that. Most of the time it's like lick your finger, stick it in the air, look around you, see what other people are doing, and then set that or whatever the lead investor is willing to invest at. Wow. There's so many unwritten rules like this that, you know, are really not explained in YouTube videos and Investopedia that I only learned and am now still learning by doing it. So did you reach out to five hundred startups directly? Did you reach out to investors and accelerators? 
one to one. Yeah, yeah. This is the big. This is a really big thing that I think I sometimes feel like it. It's my superpower in a way because it's whenever there is any kind of formalized process for doing something or getting into something, I immediately ignore it. That's like my first reaction. And I think everyone, well, if everyone did it, it probably wouldn't work. But I think everyone listening to this, since you're, you want the X factor should do that. Like when it comes to 500 startups, the process is you go to their website, you apply online, you upload a deck, you upload information about your company, and then you wait for them to contact you. And if they do contact you, then you get, you know, an interview or something approximately 2000 no no i think now it's up to like 4 to 5000 companies every batch apply to get into 500 startups it's extremely competitive it's like only 1% or less of companies that apply actually get into the program so i did that process but i also went around that entire process in a couple of ways i reached out to alumni who had been in 500 startups and i asked them i basically pitched them the company, Judo Launch, helping companies succeed on Amazon. And I talked to another a contact of mine who knows the founder of 500 Startups or one of the founders of 500 Startups and you know got them to recommend me directly to one of the founders of 500 Startups, Christine Tsai. So that's really why we ended up getting in was those recommendations from alumni and from you know the top down not by applying wow and that's something that is a good takeaway there when you want something when you decide that this is the way forward don't let one form stop you <laughs> go go as hard as you can to get yes. get exactly what you're after exactly yeah and don't follow the rules i think is the biggest thing is like go use whatever kind of x factor you possibly can like I, I always like, I always cringe when people don't want to use the strengths that they naturally have because they feel like, like it's like cheating. Like if you have like, I don't know, really wealthy relatives or like a dad who's in politics and can get you connections to get into this or that, or you're a woman in tech and you can play the, oh, I'm a woman in tech card, but you don't want to play that you don't want to use your dad's connections or you don't want to be the woman who claims to be a woman in tech. And you know, that's her only identity. Dude, screw all that. Are you serious? Use your dad's connections. Be shouting out from the rooftop that you're a woman in tech, like use whatever cards you're dealt and whatever cheats, you know, God has given you don't squander it, man. Like <laughs> absolutely, use, use the cards you're dealt. Oh, 100%. 100%. I call that the unfair advantage. And that's really what you want is an unfair advantage. So if you have an unfair yeah. advantage, fucking use it. <laughs> why yeah, why hide it from it? How many people don't want it? They're like, oh, I don't want to be labeled as that. Or I don't, I don't want to, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to be labeled as just like a woman in tech or again. And so I don't want to really want to play that card or I don't want to, you know, use my dad's connections. I want to prove that I can do it on my own. I'm like, why do you? What are you trying to prove? What's wrong with you? Like, if I was a woman in tech, I'd be reaching out to all the other women VCs and being like, I'm a woman, you're a woman in tech. You know, it's hard for us women. Let's do this. You know, if my dad had political connections, I'd be like, introduce me to that guy. He might invest <laughs> in my company. You know, I have no shame and I feel like nobody should be, should have shame about using the cards they're dealt. 
anytime. Well, actually, that's an interesting point. I think some of that would be fear, because oftentimes people put roadblocks in front of themselves to say, oh, I couldn't do it because of this. So the same person with parents. Mm, true their connections through their parents would say, I didn't want to use them, but I didn't make this happen, but I could have used that parent connection, right? It, uh, it puts you on the hook. If you put, if you go full out, lean all the way in, you're on the hook. It's either going to work or it's not. And that's, that's scary. That's an interesting interpretation. Yeah. It's, there's no excuse then if you, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. <laughs> well, okay, cool. I like it. So I love the 500 startup model where they've got four or 5,000 people competing for their program. Yeah, so seriously, is, right? was it, was it worth it? Oh my God, dude, I'd do it. Yeah, I would do it all over. Same deal. 6%, you know, everything. So they take 6% at a two and a half million dollar valuation, all companies, no matter what stage you are, how good you think you are when you go and you take the same deal. It's 6% of the company. And that's it. And the amount of shares they get is calculated based on a $2.5 million valuation converted. So yeah, I mean, a lot of people would scoff at that, especially if you already have traction and you know, you're well underway and have good you know, resources and connections or whatever. But I can only speak for myself, but for me, it was uh, massively transformational, not just because of the Cap, they give you a small amount of capital in the form of a convertible note. They give you about 100K all told net. But the biggest component is the network that you're introduced to of other companies and the education. So they just school you. And it's like school of hard knocks. Like they kind of treat you like shit. Like it's being in like military boot camp. Like they're like, you know, <laughs> you go in there every day and they're like, you think you're hot shit? You're nothing. <laughs> like it's it's kind of like that. <laughs> but they, they and, teach and you. And I read, I I yeah. read they start off with sales and marketing hell week. <laughs> yeah, so that, sales and marketing that hell like week. Fun. That's right. Yeah, it's called sales and marketing hell week. And they go through distribution. It's really focused more on B2B and enterprise, although they do have some B2C companies. B2B meaning business to business, B2C meaning business to consumer. So if you're enterprise focused and you're selling to businesses, that's a B2B. If you're selling to consumers like a Amazon business would, that's B2C. So they're mostly focused on B2B and most of their content is about how to sell to businesses, which is good because that's what Judo Launch does. It sells to e-commerce businesses. So they teach you all kinds of stuff about distribution, you know, distribution channels, how to, you know, run an enterprise sales process and sales cycle, you know, everything, how to structure contracts. They have specialized seminars on different specific paid channels like Facebook and Google. They have but okay, so that's that's one portion of it, right? The sales and marketing. Then they have the entire portion of it that's all about how to fundraise and running a fundraising process and how to get a term sheet written, how to build an investment deck and how to do a pitch and all of that. That's a huge component, a big part of the process as well. Wow. Okay. So there's definitely a ton of value that they provide on top of the seed capital and, and taking oh, yeah. It's 8%. all about that. Yeah. Okay. And do they actually provide some services as well? Or is it training and then you go find, you still need to engage other people to do those services? No, they don't really get their hands that dirty. They do have like EIRs, which is short for entrepreneur in a residence. It's like a residence DJ, but but way less cool. <laughs> um, and they, they have those people like who are like 
ex entrepreneurs themselves who have had their own successful exits, et cetera, who are in there to kind of guide you and help you, you know, with this stage of, of the growth of your business. And they will sometimes get their hands a little dirty with the company, but most of the time it's guidance and knowledge and it's up to you to do the execution pretty much. To actually that's, implement. That's mostly it. I like that. Yeah. So that yeah. was, you were part of batch 22, which sounds exciting, I found online. Yeah. So how many of those 22 companies that you were going through whole week with and the whole process, how many of those, if you know, are still in business and what could you tell us about the other people that you went through this process with? Yeah, well, so a good portion of them are succeeding. We stay in contact with one another and like keep each other updated on the progress of our businesses. I know a couple of them have already gone under and don't exist anymore. A couple of them have transformed or pivoted and are either kind of eking along or you know slowly growing. And then there are a couple of them, just a small handful there's like three or four that I know of that are really just rocketing. And there's probably more than that that I don't know of. But but yeah, there are a couple that, you know, that I was in the batch with that now have like, there's one follow Freud that has a million monthly active users, which is like, I mean, that's a big number. Um, yeah, absolutely. For, you know, a paid app. There's uh, Rever is like the Strata, like mapping runs, but this is for motorcycles specifically. They're doing great. There's a project management software called Core that's, you know, really kicking ass and just raised a series A. So some of these companies are doing really well. I mean, it is public goods. Again, that's another one. It's kind of like brandless. They do direct to consumer organic bathroom products, but they sell in like the BJ's model where you get like a subscription and then they sell all of their products almost at cost once you subscribe to them. So yeah, there's some really unique companies in the batch and a lot of them are doing quite well. A couple of them have gone under, you know, of course, it's early stage tech. That's what you'd expect. But a lot of them are actually are doing well, which speaks to 500's ability to pick. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's really step one, isn't it, is getting into the program. That's just the starting line. In some cases, not even quite the starting line. Oh, yeah, you still need exactly. to do quite a lot of work and use those connections that you're given during that process or that you can leverage during that process. So when we first spoke, when we first met, you were actually based in China and you were looking at going and raising capital again since 500 startups. And since then, you've now joined the Accelerator SOSV. So why did you go for a second Accelerator and how is that process? Yeah, there's kind of a stigma about this actually in like the techo sphere of going from accelerator to accelerator because some companies kind of do that. They'll go to like just from accelerator to accelerator and kind of like it's like never leaving mom and dad's house sort of. <laughs> but yeah, we decided to do a second accelerator program. And I got to say, it's it was actually pretty similar to 500. It, it had a lot of differences, but in general, the things they focus on, it's pretty funny how these accelerators without really speaking to one another and with kind of being competitors to one another, they find the same sort of equilibrium where they focus on investment and the process of raising investment and the process of pitching and all of that. And they focus on distribution and sales and marketing. The difference was engaging with SOSV is because the arm that we engaged with was called China Accelerator and they're based in China. So they have Chinese mentality which is very, very different than the American mentality when it comes to business and tech and fundraising and, and marketing. They're way, way more focused on speed 
at all costs, like super duper hyper speed of everything. Like talking, like testing something out and getting the results within like hours, not like weeks. And I don't, I'm trying to find an elegant way to say this, but I can't find one. So I'm just going to say, I wouldn't call it like looser morals, but way more kind of everything goes. Don't second guess it. Don't let your morals get in the way of testing something out. Over that's really, that's kind of a harsh it's a way different to put culture. it. Yeah. It's, it, I'm, I'm putting it really harshly, but in a way it's like things that would kind of be in the gray area for like, oh, is that like direct copying or, oh, is that, is that spam? Like, or, you know, things where you would really kind of second guess yourself, like from an American business culture standpoint, just the Chinese wouldn't even think twice about it's like, nope, we're going to do it. But like, you know, if it works, we're going to do it. It's like a highly practical, highly like kind of pragmatic, practical culture and business culture where it's like, whatever works is what you do. And, you know, fear of copying or infringing or stepping on someone's toes or spamming or um, any of that other stuff that kind of sits in a gray area is just not a concern. There's a really, really big company that blew up just in the last four years. It's now listed on American stock exchanges. I think it's on, yeah, I think it's listed on NASDAQ. It's called Pinduoduo. And it's worth, I don't know how many billions, but well into the billions. And it grew that fast just in like a couple of years. It was like only three years or something that it went from like zero to IPO. And these guys, this is kind of like sort of good example to show like how business culture works in China. They, they are like peer to peer e-commerce. So the biggest app in China is called WeChat. Everyone has it, use it to pay people, use it to talk to people. It's Facebook, PayPal, Twitter, Snapchat, like all combined into one. And these guys were allowing people to sell to their friends through WeChat and other social apps. And they blew up. They had all these kind of multi-level marketing style games where, oh, if I sell my friends five of this product, then I get one for free. Or, you know, I get a commission of the sales that you make as my friend or whatever. There were all kinds of like structures like this to incentivize friends to sell to one another for brands. And, you know, they got crazy fast adoption in like these tier two, tier three cities, like not Shanghai, not Beijing, but like some city in China that you've never heard of, but yet it has 10 million people, mm-hmm. um, but nobody's ever heard of it as China for you. So they got a lot of traction in these cities and it turned out like this wasn't really kind of publicized until after they had already listed on American exchanges. It was like a vast majority of the products that they were selling were like fakes. Wow. And, and they gotten like, you know, these kind of tier two, tier three city folk in China who like maybe didn't know the difference or didn't care to buy like in mass quantities, you know, fakes of, you know, really large brands like Huawei. It would be like Huawei I or something like it looked exactly the same. Everything was exactly the same, but it was not actual Huawei. Wow. <laughs> and it was like, it came out and it was a big like, it was a big deal in America that like, oh, this company's a scam. And, in, you know, in China, it was like, what are you Americans talking about? Like this, you know, this is how you grow. <laughs> That's is, normal. You know, you, it's normal. Yeah. Normal business practice. Like, what are you guys being babies about? <laughs> well, it definitely sounds like a different business environment. Like you've explained it there. That That's interesting. A little insight there. So 
what advantage did you take away from being a software company based in China? And then we'll fast forward to moving back to the States currently. Yeah. I mean, the good thing was, I don't want to sound like I'm sitting on a high horse or anything like that. You know, it's, there's just different cultural values, I think. And yeah, a really good thing about being in China was kind of understanding how fast things move there. It was really wild, you know, kind of experiencing firsthand the dissonance between the way business is done in America and the American techosphere and the way that it's done in China and specifically the difference in speed. So it was kind of good to kind of get that speed incorporated into the culture of the business because we had no choice. We're part of this program. And again, it's the same thing. They kind of treat you like shit. It's like being in military boot camp. You're nothing. You know nothing. Get off your high horse. You're shit. You know, you do what we say because we know more than you um, type of deal. And it's really hardcore. It's a hardcore atmosphere and it's very, very stressful, but it's it's a huge growth experience. And so that I think that speed is probably like one of the biggest things that I took away, how fast they move there. Wow. Yeah, I think speed is underrated for sure. Every time someone wants to just dig deeper and deeper into the data, maybe they're missing an opportunity. I think there's a happy medium somewhere there, but you never really know. Yeah, so seriously. then- now you're based back in the States. So what caused the move back to the States? I, you know, to be honest with you, I feel, I, it's so funny because, I mean, you're probably the same corn because you've done quite a bit of traveling and lived in a number of different countries as well. But I feel, you know, in terms of, I'll say what I noticed being in China is that to me, it's clear, and I guess time will tell, but to me, it's clear that the way things operate in China, like politically, economically, it just outperforms like America and outperforms like Western democracies style capitalism. The, you know, quote unquote, you know, communist capitalism that China has engendered, it's nuts, but it, it just, it seems to turn out that like a totalitarian government and environment outperforms you know, this more free, laissez-faire kind of economics that we operate on in America, because I just saw firsthand how fast things go. It's like, you know, in China, they say, it's funny, like they have a saying that like, well, in America, when a politician says something, everyone says, oh, well, that's not true. Like if they, if they make a promise or say they're going to do something, people are like, yeah, right, whatever. You know, another promise by a politician. In China, when like a politician says that something is going to happen, everyone's like, oh, okay, well, that is what's going to happen now because it always does. Like they just make plans and there's no one to stop them from doing things and they just do it. Like they have total control and they therefore they can move extremely fast. So that was kind of a crazy thing to see how quickly things move there. I felt coming from China back to America, like going from Shanghai, I was living in Shanghai. So going from Shanghai, which is like the New York of Asia, back to New York, the New York of America, <laughs> it felt like I was going back in time, like, you know, still paying for things with cash, you know, have places that don't accept card, even using card. Like in China, no one's using their card. They pay with WeChat. Like everywhere you go, there's like QR codes, even like hobos on the street and street bustlers, like they have QR codes hanging around their neck and you can scan it and pay them via WeChat. It's no like, way. yeah, like even street buskers and everything, like, you know, some lady on the side of the street selling coconuts or something, she'll accept, you know, digital currency and WeChat payment. So the adoption of technology is just so rapid there. Like if you were to get middle America, 
to adopt, like if you were trying to get middle America to a mass adopt a tech, a technology or a new app, it's like, good luck. You know, like in China, it's like everything is digital. Every man, woman, and child, you know, has at least one phone, if not two or three and just operates everything inside it. So yeah, I mean, they're just blasting past economically, I'll say, you know, just in that realm, they're just blasting past everyone else. So yeah, coming back to America, I came back because the quality of life to me, I just prefer like the kind of, and I mean, you can find microcosms anywhere you go and your own community anywhere you go. So I'm, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't go back, but I think generally like I do value like freedom. I wouldn't call myself somebody that values privacy, like particularly, but in China, it's like anything you write is like recorded and like, you know, can be read or played back to somebody at some time. And if you say something bad about the president or the government, like you'll get your account suspended or, or shut down. I just, I don't dig that. That is not cool to me. It might outperform economically and I, I think it will, but as an individual, I just, I don't dig it. Sure. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons. I've I've spent quite a bit of time in Vietnam over the last six years, and although I haven't been there in almost two now, but I've spent a little bit of time there, and I see kind of similarities. I haven't spent a ton of time in China, but I loved over there that people would choose to work instead of sit back and just relax. Like housewives would be bored so they'd open a shop and the lady who helped us find a house to lease she was working three jobs (laughs) one was as a real estate agent one was as a restaurant working a restaurant and actually she was a student as well so she had all these hustles going on but then yeah there's that layer of freedom that's missing so yeah i can see how that would be that would get to you over time and the more you kind of get into the culture in a foreign country, that's when it really comes up <laughs> once you really know what's going on, right? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Once you really integrated, because I was living there for a year, well, just under a year, just about a year. To me, I feel like that's enough time to integrate and really understand what's going on. Even though I do have to admit, I hung out with a lot of expats while I was there. It was locals and expats, but more than half of the folks that I like hung out with on a regular basis were expats. So yeah, I do have to admit that. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So, so the coming back to the accelerator side of things. So the second accelerator you went through is now over. So you're back on your own again, I guess, running a business. So what's changed since going through two accelerators and what do you need next or what are you focused on next? Yeah. So after we left SOSV, that's when we started to raise the seed. And so, yeah, just completing that close and then, yeah, implementing everything we learned and you know everything that I've learned to grow as a business is next. And there's definitely no more accelerators in our future. I plan to suss this out. And to be honest with you, Corin, I'm like, my attitude, I mean, you know this because you and I like have had like pretty deep bonding, unexpectedly deep bonding sessions, me and you, which I fucking love. And I, that's why I hope we link up in Chicago at uh, iRise next month. But yeah, to me, this whole thing has been, I've been making choices from these businesses from the standpoint of learning and growth foremost and the money and, and specifically like the near term and immediate money and, you know, direct financial impact on myself. Second, like every decision that I've made has been with that set of values first. So I've always, you know, 
if it came down to keeping more of the company or taking more money out of the company versus giving more of the company away or putting more money back into the company to grow it and allow me to have a new experience that I'll take with me for life for how to grow companies in these different ways. You know, I had the bootstrapped experience with the brand and had the VC experience with judo. And I view it as like college on steroids and I'm 31. So I wouldn't call myself young, but I'm definitely not old. And I'm still like the cool thing about business that I think you and I have already like bonded over is the fact that, you know, if you're an athlete, you peak when you're like, I don't know, 23 or 24 or something like that. Right. If you're an entertainer, you peak in your twenties, maybe your early thirties. You know, if you're an actor, same thing, you peak in your twenties, thirties. If you're in business, you don't peak until like your sixties. Like you're, you're like <laughs> running like full bore with all of your, all of the knowledge and successes and failures that have made you, you know, the business person you are in your sixties, like your fifties and sixties are like your prime. Like that's awesome to me. And if like with the, the saying always ringing in my head that I can't remember who said it, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or someone, I think George Washington if you give me an hour to cut down a tree, I'll spend 50 minutes sharpening my ax. That's kind of the standpoint that I've had. 100%. I'm like, you know, whatever happens with these businesses, if they freaking, you know, go bankrupt or if they become, you know, billion dollar businesses, that's secondary to me learning the art of growing a business and growing a team and motivating a group of people to accomplish a goal and solve a problem. Because then I know once I have that tool set built into my mind forever, and you can never take it from me unless you like give me a lobotomy, then I can use that skill set to grow businesses, solve problems, make money, you know, be free and, you know, have impact for the rest of my entire life. Wow. I love that, dude. That's, that's awesome. It's rare to find someone at 31 that thinks like that. So you've obviously gone pretty deep in some peaks and valleys there to, to understand that in our space with some of the people that I come across, I definitely see a trend of, I forget the term for this, it's not survivor's bias, but it, it's the opposite where you have one success and you think everything you touch turns to gold, right? <laughs> so you, oh, yeah. People that succeed yep. in spite of themselves too early or really have very little to do with that success then turning around and expecting the world to be a certain way. So, and not realizing that maybe it was timing, maybe it was a marketplace that was driving Market. a lot of that yep. growth, right? Yep. <laughs> so, being yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. From the for, get -go for the is... companies you're talking to, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be yeah, a lot not... of that. And I, I'll, I'm not immune to it. I mean, I definitely, when I started seeing successes, you know, with the brand, I was like, I'm the man. I'm so smart. I was, you know, I had to get beaten down a couple of times and like, you know, run into cash flow issues and have to take out a bunch of credit cards. And I borrowed money from my dad at one point. And like, I mean, yeah, like you said, a lot of peaks and, you know, high peaks and low valleys, you know, end up giving you that like cool, like settled, humble, you know, confidence. That's like, okay, I can move forward with confidence, but 
I'm not going to be reckless about it. I'm going to do my cash flow projections. I'm going to do my due diligence. I'm not just going to run in guns a blazing, you know, with a blindfold on, you know, shooting out Rambo style. Right, exactly. And that's really where longevity comes from. Someone was, man, I, I can't think of any quotes while I'm talking for some reason. <laughs> I read somewhere that, or someone was mentioning that being rich isn't how much money you make, it's how long you keep it. And I think the same is true with business. It's not what you do this year. It's what you do in 10, 20 years that really matters. Because one year is one year. One month is one month. It doesn't matter. It's the long game that really plays. And that's where you can build the skill set and hone that that skill over time, right? Yeah, it's so true. And that that reminds me too of... um, Have you read uh, Ray Dalio's book by chance, Principles? Yes. Oh, dude. Absolutely. You and I are the fucking same person sometimes. I love <laughs> Ray Dalio's book, Principles. I actually haven't finished it. I'm about two thirds of the way through right now and listening to it on audiobook. You might have recommended it to me. I don't know. It was somehow on my list and I just got to it finally. That might have been Maybe. you. I know we've yeah. talked about books and you gave, we, we talked about Ken Langone's book and a couple other books that we've read together. But in any case, that what you just said reminded me of that, of Ray Dalio, because that is the big thing that he always says is like, you know, the most, he he even has that app for it, the pain button, you know, where Mm -hmm. it's like, yes, you will experience pain. You'll experience failure. The, he says it in such a less cliche way that I'm about to, but it's like the important thing is that you actually go through that experience of pain and that experience of failure, whether it's a small failure or a big giant failure with the self-awareness to be able to not just like be panicked scrambling out of it and then you know just falling into the same hole again but to actually step outside yourself and look around and be aware enough to see what patterns led you to make that mistake and led you to that failure or that shortcoming and incorporate that into your skill set for the future so that every time you what Ray Dalio says is every time you meet that challenge again it's another one of those and you keep meeting more another ones of those and utilize the principles that you've you know ingrained in yourself from these failures of the past to handle those and it becomes like an operating system for your brain and for you know your effectiveness in life to be able to just always see the world as another one of those and i've experienced some serious hardships with you know these businesses in the last 2 years you know a ton of times i thought it's all over. We're totally screwed. It's all over. But continued to walk through the storm and got through that valley into the next peak. And every time, you know, I'm sure not to just be the person who's sprinting out of the graveyard in fear, you know, and, you know, that feeling of running out, out of the graveyard where you have to run faster and faster and faster because you're just overcome with like fear and panic. But to get out of the situation while analyzing what got you into the situation so that you can prevent it in the future. That's the art and and science right there. Oh, absolutely. It reminds me of there's no pleasure without pain, but also the crazy part about success, any level of success, is that it would take a monk level of discipline to break down a success as well as we do with a failure. 
Yeah. So, oh like I was mentioning before, some people over yeah. overestimate <laughs> their importance in successes. Yeah. But the failures are, are really the opportunities to figure out what the fuck's going on. And sometimes you may have done everything right, but there could have been something else at play because we don't control every scenario. No, certainly not. Yeah. And that's there's that saying, success has a thousand fathers, failure is an orphan. You know, because uh, everyone takes credit for the successes, but the failures, you know, it was his fault. Absolutely. So, absolutely. It yeah. takes a, a big yeah. man to realize that the success wasn't their fault as well. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing. And it, it's so true. Like you said, market, timing, your partners, you know, your employees. Like you said, it takes like a monk's level of, you know, humility and, rational, objective, observational skills to be able to recognize what went right that may or may not have had to do with you. Yeah, exactly. It's actually like deal making. So the larger the deal we get involved in, the more I'm realizing that I'm not the critical piece. I can definitely influence things and I, I like to think I'm useful, but it's actually the deal itself that if I step back and pull myself out of the equation and bring the two things together, it often moves a lot smoother. We still mm. advise our clients, of course, and make sure they're doing, you know, help them as best we can. But if I remove my ego from it, or I've had every experience under the sun, this I need to look at this as with fresh set of eyes and objectiveness for the client and also for the person buying the deal or, or whatever it may be. But that was a humbling point for me was realizing that I had not as much to do with the success of a transaction that I thought I once had, which was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And that's so. That's also very Zen of you to be able to not just throw everything that you have at every deal, at every problem, at every juncture, because that's one thing. I mean, I run into this all the time where I see a big problem in the company and I jump in to solve it. And, you know, maybe it gets solved when I jump in, maybe it's more of a challenge to solve it, but it, you know, either way I come out of it, you know, say once it's solved, I'll come out of it thinking, good thing I jumped in there. Shit. It would have been crazy if I didn't jump in there and solve that, you know, but then I'll go back and think again and think, okay, well, what would have happened if I didn't solve it? Maybe I saw the problem first, but maybe somebody would have seen it, you know, a week after me. Or maybe it would have gotten to just that next level of urgency before it got to the top of somebody else's priority list who is also in has domain of responsibility in this part of the business. And maybe I'm just spinning my wheels. That might have been actually a bad use of my time to solve that problem because maybe I could have let that fire burn until it got bright enough for someone else to see it and put it out while I focused on the things that are actually important for me to do as a CEO. And I mean, I am far from mastering the art of that, of prioritization and also letting the house burn to a certain degree because everything's always on fire, right? Exactly. But, uh, I, I'm learning. I'm st I still, I would consider myself like a, just a, a little grasshopper, you know, <laughs> uh, lear learning. I'm, I'm definitely learn in the learning phase. Uh, so I love yeah. it. Hello. Well, I could. I think we could go on for hours, and I'd love to. Oh, at we some could. Point. <laughs> Every time I talk but, to you, I'm upset about how 
infrequently we get to chat. Yeah, exactly. I think you're one of maybe two people that I would consider a good friend that I've never actually met <laughs> in person. So we'll have Same. to make that happen. I know. At some point, isn't right? that true? Yeah, because like in this space, like everyone calls everyone friends. And I remember when we did our podcast, I was like, "Yeah, but we're actually friends." Me and Corin, <laughs> like right. that's that's a person that I would call a friend, not somebody who I shook hands with at a conference. But yeah, dude, we got to link up somewhere in the freaking yeah, world, definitely, sometime. Definitely, I, we're gonna make that. I happen. really hope it happens in Chicago <laughs> for sure. We gotta, we gotta do it. Absolutely. Well, I do have one more question before I let you go. Do you still have time? I know we've gone a little over here. Yes. Cool. So, yep. I already texted my next meeting. Oh, perfect. Okay, so last question for you is if you were to go back and talk to young Chris, mini I don't know what's smaller than a grasshopper, mini grasshopper, <laughs> before you started raising capital <laughs> or going out <laughs> or going out to uh, accelerators, what advice would you give yourself? Okay, I, I would so I've actually been doing a lot of thinking about this recently, that that very question, asking myself that. And there are two main things that I would impart the importance of to myself and would want me to change. I mean, I'm sure that I could go on forever, but really I would have going through these accelerator programs. Like I said, they're focused on marketing and sales. Like you said, marketing sales, hell week and investment uh, and fundraising. They assume that your product is already done. It's already the best that there's no work on product at all. And I would say that for both of these businesses, I I almost hate to say this because like in this world of like lean startup and, you know, move fast and break things, like it's almost like faux pas to say this, but I would have focused more on product, on the process of creating something uniquely great and, and not just polishing a golden turd, not just like sitting, you know, away in a cave you know, being a nerdy craftsman engineer, making something that maybe no one wants, but the process of making something great that is validated that someone does want. So it's both great and, you know, uh, it's something mass marketable that people actually want. Like that is an art to be able to create that. And I do think that I've made the mistake many, many times of speeding through that process to get to the distribution part and the marketing part before really spending enough time to validate, you know, greatness of product. And I've been spending my own, you know, personal time to rechart that for the future. So I'd say, yeah, a focus on product and greatness of product before trying to market it is the thing you're marketing even great. <laughs> that's, that's one thing I would say. Mm. And the other major thing that I bet you run into all the time, Corin, maybe not, but because maybe maybe most people out there are much smarter than I am in the business realm. But the biggest thing that I wish I would have done a lot more of is straight up just boring old cash flow projecting and cash flow management. Much more time accurately projecting financials and projecting key performance indicators and uh, traction metrics out and cash flow specifically. And things that will affect cash flow. There are way too many times that I ran into problems in both the physical products business and in judo where, you know, we ran short on cash unexpectedly. And that shouldn't happen. 
you know, you should see that happening a mile away, not just run into a brick wall by accident. And, you know, the number one reason companies die is because they run out of money. So, you know, if you can see that ahead of time, you can make, take the action that's necessary for you to get through that tough time because it only takes running out of money once for you to die in this world. It's like, you know, money is, is a company's oxygen and you can't, no matter how strong you are, you could be swimming to an island and, you know, you could be the most fit guy in the world, but if your head goes underwater for more than five minutes, you're dead, you know, no matter how strong you are. Absolutely. So yeah, I would say I would focus a lot more than on that as well. Well, I've got news, great news for you, mate. <laughs> Everyone in the world isn't smarter than you. I'd say probably two to 3% of people we talk to really know their numbers. Okay, good. That <laughs> makes me feel better. It's probably, it's probably the most important part other than product market fit is actually making right. sure you can still pay the fucking bills. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> because yeah. you need to play a little bit of defense and budgeting and planning is is defense. So it's not all about top line sales, more sales, more sales. It's how much money do we have? How long is it going to last? And what are we doing to improve that situation? Yep. So it's often a tough thing and something that we want to hide from really because no one really wants to talk about the books, right? Everyone wants to talk about revenue or how many staff they have or how many users in, in software. It's not about how much money you're actually making. Are you even profitable, right, to go do that next pitch? But if you are profitable and you have a clear path to more profitability, the one thing that all investors want is somewhere to place their money that'll get a better return than their other opportunities. And right. Yeah. new startups that's a risk it's mm -hmm. fun and exciting but if you can show someone here's what it takes to cost the cost of acquiring a customer here's how long they stay here's how much profit we make on that person i need one billion dollars to go make more of that you will get it oh yeah if you give me a machine where i put a dollar in and a dollar 20 comes out i'll keep putting dollars in all day long i'll sit next to that machine all day all and all night all day. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's it right there. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And thinking about product a little bit more, I agree. You don't want to be in a cave on your own doing this. You want to be with your actual customer. Yes. So that would be the one one critical thing. And you can't just optimize forever. You still Then you don't have a business. Right? Exactly. It would just be you crafting something that a few people thought were cool. So there is a fine mix there. But I think that some really good advice that we could pause there. So I didn't even get through half my questions. So we'll definitely have to do this again. We should. And hopefully in person next time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that'd be great. Yeah. Because last time you were in the city, I wanted to get you in to do the recording in person at our office yeah. in the city. But so. you sent me a random text no, without no. saying who it was from. <laughs> like, wait, who's this guy like, that wants to sushi and record? <laughs> Yeah. What, what is this sushi thing? I had a um a new number, so I just assumed that was someone else. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even see the no WhatsApp message till later. But talk about yeah, anyway, that. Rambo style. <laughs> Absolutely. Of course, he knows who I am. <laughs> who else? Awesome. Well, sushi? Right. Exactly. Well, um, yeah, we'll definitely make that happen. But Chris, how can people get in touch with you or do you want people to get in touch with oh, you? Oh, yeah. No, no, totally. I totally would. They can just email chris at judolaunch.com. That's my email address. So uh, yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with me. And and yeah, so that's the best thing to do. Just awesome. Email that goes right to me. 
Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Chris, for jumping on the call. I appreciate every conversation we have, and hopefully the listeners got some value out of today's call as well. Absolutely. Oh, and but by the way, can I just say what Judo Launch does? Is that uh Oh, please, that please do. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So I was- <laughs> Yeah, just just in case people are curious. Yeah, so I mean, Judo Launch is both software and services, but I think like to the audience that we're speaking to right now, like the relevant part is we take on, you know, the management of entire Amazon accounts and kind of one of our claims to fame is we do it in Europe too. So we, you know, we take over the active management of the account, including the listing creation and optimization, the customer service, the PPC management and optimization across markets. So yeah, so, so, so I mean, we actually speak a good amount to companies that do the acquisition of brands and then, you know, need someone to grow them and, and operate them. So uh, ah, awesome. if they're lacking capacity, so. That, yeah, that's something we get asked. Just wanted to throw that. There. Yeah, that's something we get asked quite a lot, actually, is how best to take over and manage deals after the acquisition. So we'll definitely refer them across to you. But one question I get quite a lot, and as the advisor in the in the equation, I think what we say sometimes is taken with a few heaps of salt. As an operator, as a service provider, how long does it take for you to get up and running on a new brand? And obviously that's how long's a piece of string, but could you give us some yeah, metrics yeah. of how long it takes you to get a handle on a business and be able to actually manage it? Yeah, no, that's actually, it's a relevant question. That's like one of the top things that we get asked, like how long until, you know, we're up and running and seeing results because we originally, we typically do like an account analysis to see like, okay, what is the state of things? What needs to be optimized? from a listing perspective, from a, you know, Amazon SEO perspective, from a PPC perspective, and then what needs to be changed in order to move the needle with, you know, the current line, or at least the current line of or number of SKUs or ASINs that we're managing. And it's typically like four to six weeks before you can really see the needle move. There, there are small tweaks that you can do like immediately. Like if the listings are like clearly not optimized, you can just like switch the main image or add content to the bullet points or something where, you know, there are immediate shifts. But if we're like, for instance, like starting up the European marketplace and we're like porting all the listings over, doing the translations, getting PPC rolling, and then getting the feedback loop going of, you know, finding what's converting best from PPC to incorporate that back into the listing optimization and the SEO to then do more PPC to refine that, that whole process to do a whole cycle of that is, is really four to six weeks to really see, you know, the, the results of that. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. And, you know, I say this with a little bit of jest, but often I see people wanting to come in, acquire companies and assume they can do better than the current owner. And we often advise to get the operations handled as is before trying to change anything, right? Because you don't really know what you don't know. Yeah. Get stasis first. Absolutely. Then try all your fancy shit. That is so true. Fundamentals need to be laid first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, awesome. So if people were, were acquiring a company, you'd be a great resource then to say, hey, we're looking at taking over this company. What would it take to get up and running? And then on top of that, what optimization could you you and your team potentially do, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep, exactly. Awesome. Well, okay, cool. Well, let's wrap up there. We're just coming up to exactly an hour, which is perfect. And um, (laughs) that's awesome. And I I will definitely hit you up to do a second interview so I can get the rest of these questions across. Yeah, we'll do a part two. 100% 
absolutely. And we'll 100% catch up in person. <laughs> Kicking, yeah, we, we have to. I mean, at this point, dude, it's getting ridiculous. We got to do that. Exactly. Exactly. All right, cool. Talk soon. All right, talk soon, brother. Thank you for listening to another episode of Truth About Exits. Now, whenever you're ready, here are three ways I can help you. If your company is doing between 10 to 50 million plus in revenue and you want help to plan your perfect exit to achieve the highest value and best deal terms possible, or if you'd like advice on acquiring other companies to continue to grow your company, we can help. Go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. There you'll see a simple form to tell us a little bit more about you, your company and your goals. And my team and I will take it from there. So go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash consult. The second way I can help is become a guest on our show. If you've had a successful exit, you want to share your story, or if you're actively acquiring other businesses and want to share your criteria with our audience, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash guest. Let's connect and I'd love to talk to you. The third way I can help you is one of my favorite things in the entire world is sharing the truth about exit stories with other entrepreneurs by speaking at events all over the world. So far, I've had the privilege of speaking at events in the US, Canada, UK, Spain, Germany, Ukraine, Czech Republic, over in Asia, China, Hong Kong, Thailand, and even Australia. If you'd like me to speak at your next event, go to truthaboutexits.com forward slash speaker and tell me a little bit more about your event and we'll go from there. Thanks for listening and I'll see you on the next episode.